Amen. Let's pray together. God, as we, we come to your word this morning, we come comfortable, if we're honest, um, comfortable in our lives, comfortable in this nice warm building, comfortable in our comfortable clothes. And God, we ask that you would shake us out of our comfort. As we come to your word, God, that you would uh, shake us out of the illusion that we have everything under control and that we know exactly what we're doing. And we, we ask that you would disturb us just enough to bring us to the edge of ourselves that we might encounter you and find real comfort in you, our great shepherd. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. We are in the book of uh, 1 Samuel this morning. We're no longer in Judges, no longer dealing with Samson, and Jeff said amen. <laughs> he's, he's done with, with Samson. But we've been going through the series, that the, God, the People God Uses. And uh, yeah, the Judges are an excellent example of these people who are full of pride and selfishness and bitterness and jealousy and all these terrible human emotions. And guess what? God uses them. And guess what? If we're honest, they look a bit like us. I mean, sure, we don't go around setting foxes' tails on fire and run them through, through a, a field, but it's, it's the same heart at the bottom of it all. And, and we're going to continue on looking at people God uses. We're, we're going to get into this story in 1 Samuel. We're going to learn about Samuel. He's really the last judge. Um, but we're going to see some more people that God uses. Uh, and, and the one we're going to look at this week is Hannah. This small, unimportant, barren woman that God uses. So we're going to get into our text, and then we will see what it looks like. We're in chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. And there was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Let's pause right there. We're having that public reading of scripture tonight. We're going to come read 1 Samuel 1. If you can't say those names, you just fake it. <laughs> Nobody knows how those names are said. No, so you just, you just go for it, own it, or just say, you know, big E, you know, from that, you know, E-town. Just make it up, and it's totally fine. All right? We'll continue on verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to Yahweh Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of Yahweh. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her. And Yahweh had closed her womb. And because Yahweh had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of Yahweh, her rival provoked her until she wept and wouldn't eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, well, why are you weeping? Well, why don't you eat? Why are you downcast? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of Yahweh's uh, tabernacle. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to Yahweh. And she made a vow 
saying, Yahweh Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then, then I'll give him to Yahweh for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken spirit. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before Yahweh and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked Yahweh for him. And what we have in our text this morning, if, if we're honest and, and really look at it, is we have a picture of a, a very real family. I think so often we, we read these stories, we read them over and over, and they just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's because it's written in Hebrew and we're reading a translation, it feels stale, and, and, and we don't see all of the character in it, all, all that's being poured into it. But if we take our time and look at it, I mean, the author of this book has really gone out of his way to show us this is a real family in a real time and place. There's a certain man from Ramatham, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim. I mean, those places don't mean anything to us. I mean, a little bit more to Jeff after he goes to Israel in February. But, like, we hear that, well, so what? But it's like, there's a guy from Chilliwack, you know, in the Fraser Valley. Like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about, right? And then gives us all this list of names, right? He's the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu. Right? It's this long list of names that shows this isn't some Johnny come lately. This guy, he is an Israelite. He has been around. He, he's got generations, right? Young nation here. He, he gives us enough generations here that he's been here through the period of the judges. This guy is an Israelite. He didn't just come into the, all this stuff. So we see we have a real family and we have a respectable family. Right? This is a, a strong Israelite family we can look at and, and maybe learn something from their story. That's what they're telling us. And then on top of that, the respectable family, this guy's got, he's got not just one wife, two wives. And we're like, oh, wait, that's weird in our culture. And we don't really know what to say about that. So let me just say two things about that that will help us kind of follow this story. Because that might be like, oh, I'm really not liking this. Number one, the Bible nowhere says polygamy is a good thing. Nowhere encourages it, nowhere indulges it. In fact, every story that you read that has polygamy in it, every story See, it doesn't work out well. It's bad. The Bible very rarely, I mean, there's some sections in the law where the Bible says, don't do this, don't do that. But typically what it does is it tells you a story. It says, how did that work out? It's about wisdom. It's looking at saying, okay, that's not a good thing. Now, so that's one thing. The Bible is not condoning this. It's just saying this is the way it was. But the other thing we need to see is in that culture, in this context, it's what you do. It's good to have kids. It's good to have a son because that son can work in the field for you. That son can, can carry on your family and that son can take care of you when you get old, right? That's why Hannah wants a son. 
That's why Elkanah wants a son. And so he marries another wife. And people will look at it and say, okay, well, that was a smart decision. Now, the Bible's not saying that's a smart decision. And you don't need me to tell you whether it's smart or not. It's just against the law here. So don't come to church to get advice on polygamy. But I'm just telling you, that, that's why it's in the text. They are a respectable family by those days' measures. But this situation does lead to an undeniable tension. Even though it was accepted culturally, the text tells us they were rivals. It, didn't, it wasn't like everyone was like, oh, well, this is what you do, and it's all fine and hunky-dory. No. Panina has kids, and everyone looks at her and says, what a great woman, what a great mom, what a great wife. She's given her husband these kids. And there's Hannah, still barren. It leads to this tension. We see that year after year they go up to make these sacrifices. They're going to the tabernacle in Shiloh, probably for the Day of Atonement, something like that, where they'll go and they'll have this, this festival, they'll have this feast after they've made their sacrifice. It's actually a really cool deal. They'll, they'll go up and give their sacrifice, their meat, and it gets burnt on the altar. Not all of it, right? It burns away just the stuff that you don't eat and a little bit more, a portion. They give some to the priest, and then it's given back to them. And it's not the meat that they came with. It's something new. It's been transformed. It's made, been made holy and given to them. So they have that feast, and Elkanah gives meat to Panina and to her kids, all of them, because she has sons and daughters. And he gives Hannah a double portion, but Panina's over here like, man, I don't even know what to do with all this meat. This is a lot of meat, right, kids? We have so much meat. She's provoking her, trying to irritate her. And, and the, the, it's really interesting that the Hebrew there, the word that they use for irritate is not the word irritate, but it's a word that we know. Rob, do you have the, the sound for that? What was that? Yeah, it's not the train going by. Thunder. Panina was provoking her to thunder her, is what it says. Why, why, why would it say that? We know that feeling. Some of you felt it right there. Thunder. Oh, you felt unsettled. You felt unsafe. Have you ever been in a storm where you felt like, I don't even know if I have a place in this big creation. I feel really small. And that's how Hannah was being made to feel. You don't have a place here. You're really small. You're unsettled. You need to feel like you are insignificant. We've all felt that way. And that's the tension that's going on in that family. And I think it leads to what is an unanswered prayer for Hannah. We don't see the prayer in this text, but I believe that she's praying every day, every year, if not every day. God, give me a kid. God, I want a kid. I just need a kid. If you give me a son, then all this will be better. God, why don't you kill Panina, get rid of her, like, make my life better. God, where are you? Year after year, she gets thundered. She gets put down, and, and there's this tension, and, and her husband is trying, trying, am I not enough for you? I'm, I'm taking care of you. I love you. Can't that be enough? And it's not enough, and this is where she is, hopeless. And this is what leads her to a desperate act, They go up to the tabernacle in Shiloh again to, to perform this sacrifice and to have this meal. And again, Panina is just pushing her, just, just trying to provoke her, trying to push her off the edge. And Hannah stands up resolutely. The, the Hebrew makes it really clear. She didn't just casually stand up. Meal was over. She got up to go somewhere. And she got up and she went to the tabernacle, and she poured her heart out. She gives this prayer, which is full of Exodus language. 
If you look at it, she says, Yahweh Almighty, if you'll only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Go to Exodus 1, 2, 3, all over the place. Yahweh is saying that, that God heard them and he remembered them. He looked upon his servant's misery, looked upon his servant's affliction, and he did not forget his promise to them. Hannah is, is calling back those words, calling back to, to God saying, God, you, you've done it for your people before. You look out for those who are in misery and affliction. Do you not see that I am miserable, that I am afflicted? Please look upon me and remember me. So she's, she's praying this desperate prayer, and, and beyond that, we need to see how desperate it is. She's doing things that she's just not allowed to do. First of all, she's not going to the priest. She's just going straight to it. And, and also, again, culturally, in the context, women weren't allowed to make vows back then. You need to have your dad's permission or your husband's permission. Sorry, ladies. It's just the way it was. But she just went and made the vow. She made this promise to God. God knows she's not allowed to, but he doesn't care. She doesn't care. She's going to go make this vow because that's how desperate she is. And it's all coming out of a broken spirit. The, the word here, you have in verse 15, she's defending herself to Eli and saying, I'm not drunk, I'm a woman, your translation might say, who's deeply troubled or who has a broken spirit. That word spirit is ruach. And it's the word for spirit, it's the word for wind, and the word for breath. And you kind of get why all those words get used together. They, they have the same idea. It's this thing you can't see, but it's this, this vital force that does something, that goes somewhere. And she's saying, my spirit is broken. It's like the very breath within me is broken. I don't know if I can keep on going. The, the thing that's keeping me alive, it's, it's not working. And this isn't working anymore, and I don't know what else to do. That's why I'm here laying out this prayer. What she's doing is she's praying a prayer that's at the edge of her very being. She's praying a prayer like she hasn't before. She's praying a prayer at the edge of her very self. The, the word here for soul, when we're reading, I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. Your translation might say heart. The word is soul, and it's, it's the word nefesh. And this is a really interesting word. I just, I love language. It's so cool how these things come up. Nefesh actually means throat. It's different to say I'm pouring out my throat to Yahweh. But why does it say throat? Well, nefesh, think about it. For early Hebrews, this was a really important part of your body. I mean, for all of us it is. But they said, oh, if I don't have my throat, then I can't eat, I can't drink, I can't breathe, I can't talk. I might not as well be around. You need your throat. It's really vital. And so it came to mean this way to express all of you. Because if you don't have your throat, you got nothing. And so your throat is your everything, right? And so she's pouring out her everything to God. That's what she says to Eli. I'm pouring out everything, and, and I'm coming to the very end of my everything, and I'm saying, God, this isn't enough, and I'm giving it over. I need a volunteer. Who wants to come up on stage? I got to see a hand up there. Naya? Come on. Come on, Naya. All right, come on down. Got to hustle. I got cookies. I, I didn't mention that. Oh, now you're all wishing you had come. Yeah, Maddie's going to help you, Naya, to get strapped in. I didn't mention that either. Uh, it's right there. Perfect. We'll just move some of this just so no one gets hurt. All right, so who, who's familiar with the saying, being at the end of your rope? 
Go ahead, she's going to get you strapped in. Being at the end of your rope, you've all heard that? I've always thought of that saying as like you're hanging from a mountain rope and you're at the bottom of it and you're about to fall off, you're at the end of your rope. But that's not actually what it is. Does anyone know where, what it really is? It's, yeah. Tether. End of your tether. I knew the British person. It's the end of your tether. It's a British idiom. You're at the end. Of, so imagine you're an animal, not saying you're an animal, Naya, who's on a post and you're tethered out to graze, to eat. And you'll graze in that whole area, the radius that you can get to. But then when you run out of grazing, you're trying to get more and you can't. And imagine how you feel. You feel frustrated. You feel desperate. You feel like, I see what I need. I see what will satisfy me and take care of me. And I can't get it. Right? That's what being at the end of your tether is all about. So, Naya, are, you, are we strapped in over there? All right. Naya, I, I told you there'd be a cookie involved. And it's yours. Just... Oh, Maddie, you gotta strap her in. See, she can get whatever she wants when she's not tethered. Let's, let's try this again. I was like, wow, that's a really long. Let's try it again. Oh, yeah. Here, I'm just gonna put it right here. And if you can get it, it's yours. If you can get it, just. No, don't take the straps off. All right. Good job. You can get out of here. <laughs> All right, we got, we got the point. She's at that tether. I mean, I could have let her go for a while. I get really frustrated, right? You can't, you can't get that, and you feel like it's yours, and you want it, and it'll, it'll make you happy. It'll complete you, and you can't reach it. And that's exactly where Hannah is. Hannah sees what she wants. She sees what, God, if I could just have a son, if you would just give me a kid, then... Thank God, people would see me and know that I'm a woman who can provide for my husband. I can take care of myself. I'd have the son who's going to take care of me in my old age. I'd go to the marketplace, and people wouldn't be whispering about me anymore. They wouldn't be averting their eyes from me anymore. But he probably wanted a cookie. Put those away. And that would make everything better if, if the tether could just be removed. She could just get a little bit further. She's finally praying this prayer at the edge of her being. She's, she's come up against it and she can't get it. And I believe her prayer has changed. Because look at what she says. She doesn't say, give me a son and then everything will be okay. She says, if you'll just give me a son, then I'll give him back to you for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. She's, she's in this place where people come and they bring their sacrifices to Yahweh. They come and lay them on the altar. And, and all the impurities, all the stuff that you don't want gets burnt away. Some is given to the priest and then it's given back to them as this new thing. This new holy consecrated thing that it couldn't have been before. It's, it's fundamentally changed. And she comes and she lays her desire on the altar. God, I've wanted a kid all my life. And now she comes and says, God, you can have that kid. He's yours. It's, it's the prayer of Abraham. Abraham, who had been waiting on this promised child, he got him. And then, and then God says, hey, I want you to sacrifice him back. And Abraham is willing to give his son because he trusts in God. And this is where Hannah gets to, saying, this kid is going to fulfill me. She no longer needs that kid. We see it when she leaves the tabernacle. Does she have a kid in her arms? Does she have a promise saying, oh, you'll definitely get a kid? No, 
But she's left no longer downcast. She's left with an appetite. She went and ate something because something happened there. Because she came to the edge of her being and she was able to sacrifice her deepest desire to a God who she could trust. We're also introduced to a priest who's asleep on the job. He's sitting there at the tabernacle and he's the high priest. And what is the priest's job? The priest's job, despite many ideas about what a priest could or should be doing, his job is to reflect God's glory to all creation and then to reflect humanity to God, to be that mediator in between. And here, here he's just guarding the door. He sees this woman, and, and this is probably a common occurrence. People come, and they, they get their sacrifice, and they have a feast, and they might drink a little too much wine. They're pretty excited to be eating this meat and having a party, and they might get a little tipsy. And so he sees her coming, like, oh, not again. Get out of here. All you drunk women are driving me crazy. Get out of God's tabernacle. That's not what this is for. But because he, he wasn't on top of what his job was about, he missed the opportunity. He didn't see what was so clear in front of him was a woman who was hurting, a woman who was in pain, a woman who needed compassion, which let's just say this, God's compassion and love is his glory. That's what Eli should have been reflecting to her. Instead, he was laying down the law. Now, to his credit, Hannah defends herself and Eli wakes up. He says, oh, I get it. May God grant you what you've requested. You're clearly, you're clearly in need and you've come to God. You've come to the right place. May he give you what you've requested. But all of this, this encounter that Hannah has, it, it leads her, I believe, to a deepened trust. She leaves this place, like I said, without a child in her arms, without any assurance that it's going to happen. And she leaves no longer downcast. Tells us, yeah, it says, and her face was no longer downcast. The, the Hebrew is, and her face no longer looked the same. She left, without, she left with not the same face, is what it says. She changed from then on. And, and why? I believe it's because of the encounter that she had there. Now, she didn't see God. She didn't hear God's voice. The, the priest didn't guarantee her anything. But something happened. There was an encounter all the same. I think it's because of how Hannah chose to deal with her pain. Because when pain comes, there are options. Whenever pain comes in our lives, and pain will come in our lives. Jeff, Jeff reminded me of a great quote from the Princess Bride this week. Life is pain. Princess. <laughs> Life is pain. And, and if, if, you're, if you're living, if you're breathing then you're experiencing pain on one level or another. And I don't know what that pain is for you. Um, pain can be the loss of a loved one. Pain can be the loss of a relationship. The loss of a job. It can be the loss of physical abilities. Pain can come in all these different ways as, as we suffer and as we, we deal with what it means to be human, to be alive, and to be broken. We all experience these pains. And... and, and there are probably more options, but as I see it, we have fundamentally two options as believers and as just humans. One is that we can run from God. We can experience pain, we can experience discomfort, we can have a tragic thing happen in our lives. 
And it can cause us to turn away from God. I mean, imagine, you can imagine Hannah going to that tabernacle year after year. She's been praying this prayer that's been unanswered. Her rival just keeps on sticking it to her and keeps on having kids. What is wrong with this lady? And, and Hannah's just fed up. And she could just go to the tabernacle and she could just start screaming at God, where are you? Why won't you show up? Why won't you take care of me? All you have to do is give me one measly kid. That's all I ever wanted from you. I'm done with you. I'm done. Maybe you've heard that in your own mind, in the lives of your friends, family members, people who are fed up with God because the pain has become unbearable. Or you can imagine Hannah going and saying, you know what, I don't even think this is true anymore. I don't even believe, what kind of God would allow me to suffer like this? I don't want to believe it, I don't want to buy it, I don't want to worship a God like that. He's not real. That's a response to pain. And we see it all the time. The other response that we can have to pain, instead of running from God, is we can fall on God. It feels counterintuitive. It, it, it feels a lot more cathartic and seems right to say, well, this is, I'm in pain, then forget God. He hasn't helped me. But instead, Hannah goes and she falls completely on God. She, she relinquishes herself and her desires, everything that she's ever had, and says, God, it's yours. Again, she goes to this place where people would sacrifice. They would give the meat. It's cooked away. It's given back to them as something brand new, something completely different than what it was now. It's holy. And she comes and she lays her desire before God. God, you know I want a son. I'm going to give him to you. I'm going to give my desire, everything I want, my ambitions, it's yours. And, and you can give me back my desire sanctified and make it something new. I want to be clear that I'm not making light of this. It's not an easy thing. But, but I do believe that this is what the biblical witness of faith is. It's, it's trust. It's trust. When, when things are difficult, can we fall on God and trust him to be the God he was to the Israelites when they were in Egypt? Can we trust him to be the God who provided for Abraham on top of Mount Moriah? Can we trust him to be the God who met Hannah in this place and gave her a child? See, Hannah does this, and she discovers a treasure that is safe from moth and rust. See, she could have just said, God, give me a kid, and she could have gotten a kid, and guess what? Kids get sick, and kids don't always measure up to your expectations, and kids can, a number of things can happen. She gave over that desire, that, that treasure that she wanted. She sacrificed that to God and said, God, give me, give me a child that I'll give back to you. And you give me what's best. She discovers a trust in God that's immeasurable, it's invaluable. Jesus talks about storing up treasures not on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, stuff gets old and breaks. He says, store your treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there's where your heart's going to be also. And I think often we just say, oh, okay, so I should just really make sure I'm a Christian and not worry about material things. And that's a real oversimplification of what he's saying. He's saying you can put your trust in all this earthly stuff, or you can put your trust in me. 
Now the way he says it is, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Everything else will be added. All that stuff will be taken care of. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. They don't worry about food. They don't worry about clothes. They get taken care of. All that stuff will be added. But seek first my kingdom. Again, not meaning just become a Christian. It means align your heart with mine. Learn to see the world as I see the world. Come and follow me. Give over your desire for all these other things. Give it to me. Let me purify it and turn it into something new. Begin to, to desire what I desire. And that's a tre- treasure that's safe from moth and rust. This trust that she has in her God as she leaves is a treasure that she can't compare to that of having a son. And lastly, this leads us to returning to Eli. Who we need to give a break. We need to talk about the high priest who intercedes. Eli, you know, he fell asleep at the wheel, but he woke up and he, he did the right thing. He said, oh, yeah, I can see your suffering. And may, may God grant your request. We also have a high priest who intercedes. The book of Hebrews tells us, and there's a typo in your bulletin that's all my fault, because there's not a Hebrews 8, 19 through 22, in case you were looking. So Hebrews 10. 19, we're told, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, namely Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We're being told as we have a high priest who has reflected God's glory to us on the cross, his love and his compassion, his open arms for you. God has reflected that to us. And so as we go, we're at the end of our lives, we want that thing, that's what's going to satisfy, that's what's going to make me whole. We can look to God and realize I don't need this. I can trust this God to meet my needs. I can give him over my desires and allow him to to allow those desires even to be crucified, to be risen to new life so we can find new hope in him. This is the high priest who intercedes for us. And lest we think it's just as simple as that, verse 24 tells us, let us consider how we may spur love and good deeds because we we are a kingdom of priests Paul will tell us that Peter will tell us that we are a kingdom of priests and so now we got to be careful as we go around the world as we're Eli that we're not asleep at the wheel that we don't encounter people who are in their pain and brokenness and simply judge them get away from your wine you drunk you got all these mixed up desires. That's what's wrong with you. You need to change this. You need to change that. Too, too often we feel like we're the gatekeepers, that we have to protect God from all the unholy things in this world. This is his good world that he made. He said it's good and he's fixing it. He's setting all things right. He wants us to be a part of that. He wants to be a part by reflecting his love and his glory through our sacrificial living. So now if we are these priests that go around, then we need to take the example of Eli who, who blesses her. We need to take the example of Jesus who sacrificially takes us into his arms and redeems our hopes 
and turns them into something new. And we can do that for those around us. This week, as you go out, as you encounter people who are broken, because we all are, so I want to challenge you is how, how can you be a priest to them? That word priest might, might mess you up. How can you reflect God's glory to them? His glory that is his love and compassion. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And it's sometimes too easy to just come in here and, and say some words and move on. And God, we just we pray that as we, we talk about experiencing pain, how we know that's real. There are people who are hurting, families who are hurting, they're suffering in all of our lives. And, and God, the temptation is just to, to run, to run from the pain, to run from you, to give up. We feel that we're at the end of our tether and we can't get what we need to survive. God, help us to fall back on you, to trust you to meet our needs, to give over our desires to you that you can turn them into something new, something holy, something that can share love and compassion to others in this world. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Are you downcast? Oh, my soul. Oh, my nefesh, my everything. Why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil within me? That's, that's something we can all sympathize with. We've all felt that, and if you haven't, guess what? It's coming. To be downcast, to, to feel like, I don't know what is next. I'm at the end of my rope. The psalmist then says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Hope in God, for he alone is my salvation. When we experience that pain, when we're, we're downcast, we can run or we can fall on him. We can put our full hope in him. And so my, my prayer for you this week is as you are pouring out your nefesh, your soul, your everything you got at God's feet, that you would give it to him and allow him to turn it into something new. That You might put your hope in him and be renewed. Go in peace.